Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you won't you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people, peoples will come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who was 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him and I will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of 12 princes and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. When he finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all the servants who were born in his house and all who were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's household and circumcised and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in the very same day, as God had said to him. Now, Abraham was ninety nine years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was thirteen years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. In the very same day, Abraham was circumcised and Ishmael, his son, and all the men of his household who were born in the house or bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. This is God's word. Let us pray. Our great God and savior. We come before you this morning and ask for your help and also for your strength as you carry us along this morning through your word. We pray that you would give to us understanding. We pray that you would bring to our mind clarity and also faith to our hearts and encouragement, Lord, to our souls. We ask that this morning you and you alone will be glorified, exalted and praised and that we, your people, would benefit from the good word that is brought this morning. We thank you for this in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Again, I greet you in the name of the Lord. I welcome uh, our members of the church, uh, guest, and also family who has returned. Praise be to God. Over the past three weeks, we have considered the details and the nuances of the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, I'm hopeful that we were able to answer at least some of the questions regarding the Abrahamic covenant. And if you uh, have an opportunity, I would really encourage you to go back and listen to the past three sermons from our past three Lord's Day sermons and at least catch up or at least get some clarity on the Abrahamic covenant. I will admit uh, there are better sermons on the Abrahamic covenant out there. Um, I'm not done for I still have one more chapter to deal with in the 22nd chapter. But I will say to you that it may be helpful to you, it may not be. But if you're looking for maybe other, and I would confess, better treatments of the Abrahamic Covenant, um, I can definitely refer some of those things to you. And so I do, though, and pray that in some way, some of your questions were answered. Now, uh, until we come to this 22nd chapter, I encourage you to uh, ask many questions. Uh, to further your understanding, uh, read more material, listen to more sermons on the subject because uh, the treatment of this subject has been wide and vast. And so I do encourage you to do more of, of your own research on the subject of covenant theology. As we continue now through the rest of this chapter and beyond, uh, let us not forget or forsake what we have learned up until this point because all that we've learned up until this point is going to be helpful for all of us as we go forward. So then today, with the Lord's help, we will consider the remaining verses of the 17th chapter, and we will do so with just three points this morning. Number one, the promises of God are a great fountain of joy. Number one, the promises of God are a great fountain of joy. This is coming from verses 15 to 22. 
Abraham is now 99 years old in this narrative that we've been dealing with. When the last time God appeared to Abraham, he was God confirming his side of the covenant with Abraham in a vision. As he walked through the severed carcasses in a smoking fire pot and flaming torch, the Lord reminded Abraham of his covenant to give him the land of Canaan and to make of him a great nation through a seed who would be born through his own flesh. It was the promise that God had initially given to Abraham when he called Abraham to leave his country and his kindred to go to the place that God would show him in Genesis chapter 12. It was these precious promises that caused Abraham, who was then called Abram, to respond in obedience to the command and also to the promise of God, but also to respond with great joy, to respond with great anticipation of the rewards that lied before him, laid before him. Imagine out of nowhere, the Lord God condescends to man. And makes promises to man that would better his life, that would improve his state of being. Only if the man walked in obedience to God's word, these rewards would be given to him. The Lord kindly reminded Abraham of those promised rewards. And if he would walk by faith and not by sight, that they would be given to him. But Abraham, like all of us, was a man of flesh and bones. He, like all of us, was prone to wander and prone to sin. When famine struck the land, Abram forsook the promises of God's provision and sought refuge and help in Egypt, which is known all throughout the scriptures, which is representative all throughout the scriptures of sin. When Abraham was in Egypt, in sin, if you will, he forsook the promises of God, God's protection. And sought to to protect himself by asking his wife to lie for him. And he kept up the charade until he was found out and rebuked by an unbeliever, the king of Egypt. He was sent out of Egypt. Then he returned to the place, the land that God had called him to. And as he returned to the land that God had called him to, he was reminded of the promises of God. This land, Abraham, shall be yours, or Abram, shall be yours. Walk about the land. Every step that your foot touches, I will give this land to you. Notice, Abram, the dust that now settles at your feet. Your children will be as numerous as the dust of all the earth, God promised. And what a joy. What mercy. What kindness God has given to Abraham. God then gives Abraham, Abram, a great victory over the nations of the earth, displaying that God, God alone rules the nations. And Abraham Abram responded by blessing the Lord with a tithe through the priest Melchizedek. Then once again, God revealed himself, promising to give Abram a child. And also again, to give Abram the land. God is constantly reminding Abram, the promises, the rewards are before you. Walk in obedience. Walk blameless before me. And God confirms the covenant again through the smoking fire pot and flaming torch. And what a great vision. What a great moment of comfort. The Lord and his reward are there for Abram if he obeys. But then time passes. Time passes and Abram is now awaiting the promised fulfillment or the fulfillment of the promise. And as time passes, I can imagine he's asking his wife, maybe every month, Sarai. Are you with child? Is this now the moment when God will fulfill his promised reward? And I can imagine month after month the difficulty of that poor woman who had been barren all of her life to respond to her to her husband who was waiting in anticipation. No, dear husband, not this time. More time passes. Sarai, is this now the time? Are you a child? And again, Sarai, difficultly having to say, no, dear husband. I'm afraid not this time. And time went on and time went on and and every month uh, and maybe even every year, but month at least disappointment after disappointment until finally Sarai could no longer bear the pain of seeing her husband's disappointment that she made a sinful suggestion. 
she suggests to her husband an alternative route in order to uh, achieve the promises of God. Genesis 16:2. the Lord has prevented me, she said, from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. I'm, I'm at my wits in. Maybe this is the only way. Maybe perhaps this is the way that God had ordained. And Abram listened to the voice of his wife, Sarai. The woman who was called to be a helpmate, to help her husband stay on track in obedience to God's word, suggests that Abram maybe take an alternative route to obtain the blessings, the promises of God. She suggests human means human efforts in order to achieve the promises of God. It was not an act of faith. It was an act of the flesh. And so she gives to Abram, Sarai, her maidservant, Hagar. And Hagar, she conceives. She bears a son. And Abram, Abram finally has the child. After 86 long years of having no children, of trying and failing and trying and failing, Abram finally has his child. But it's bittersweet. I can imagine it's bittersweet. I can imagine that deep within the heart of Abram, he knew the means through which he achieved this child was not the means through which God had commanded or even ordained. I imagine that deep within the heart of Abraham, he knew that he had listened to the voice of his wife And not listen to the voice of God. And for 13 years. God was silent. For 13 years there were no more visions. For 13 years there were no more appearances from God. It would appear as though Abram was was left to think about what he had done. For 13 years. Until. God in his mercy appears to Abram again at the age of 99. He appears to God and to Abram and makes this great declaration in verse 1 of chapter 17. He says, I am God Almighty. You may have heard of that. It, it is it is God making a declaration that he is El Shaddai. Walk before me. Be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you and I will multiply you exceedingly. And in response to God's appearance, Abram falls on his face. Let me say this, out of fear. We are not supposed to fear God, are we? Is he not the creator of all the universe? Did not consistently everyone who was faced with God fall on their face before God in fear, in terror, in horror? In absolute dread, he falls on his face. The Lord recounted and further revealed the covenant promises which he had been saying over and over again, but then introduces something further. He, he further reveals more of the, the details of the, of the covenant by saying, Abram, your name is no longer Abram, your name is now Abraham. And Abram fell on his face. Out of fear, out of dread. And notice the passage. When God comes to Abram or is still revealing the covenant promises in chapter 15 or verse 15. Abram falls on his face again. And laughs and says in his heart when God says, you will have a child from your wife, Sarai, who is no longer Sarai. Her name is now Sarah. Abram falls on his face He first falls on his face in fear and terror and dread and then falls on his face again in joy and absolute amazement. Brothers and sisters, uh, fear and faith, they come together. Abram fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, will a child be born to a man 100 years old? Will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Abram. At the announcement of God's promise, at the announcement of what God will do one year from today, Abram laughs. This may not seem like a big deal, but there has been much ink spilled over the meaning of Abraham's laughter. After all, laugh could be a form of mockery. 
A laugh could be a form of disbelief, but it could also be a form of absolute amazement and joy. But but there really is no need to speculate the meaning of Abraham's laughter, for his laughter is explained to us in the scriptures. The scriptures give us insight, listen, into the very thoughts of Abraham's heart. Notice again verse 17 of chapter 17. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said, not audibly, not, not out loud, but where? In his heart. And the scriptures are giving us insight into what Abraham is thinking in his heart. It's, he's saying in his heart, will a man be born or will a child be born to a man 100 years old? He's saying this in, in, in his mind. Just as some of you who are listening right now are saying things in your own minds. The scripture gives us evidence to God knows the very thoughts and intentions of our hearts. For that is what God's word does. It, cut, it cuts to the very heart of who we are. And will Sarah, who was 90 years old, bear a child? He's asking in his heart. But he's also asking out of absolute joy and amazement. Not out of doubt. Not out of disbelief. But out of amazement and out of joy. The man who was once called Abram, exalted father. Now called Abraham, father of many nations. Will have a son. The son that he had always wanted. The son that he had always believed would come from his wife Sarai. Who was now called Sarah, the princess. Abram's laughter is one of pure joy at the sound of God's promises. It was as if Abraham was reminded by the Lord that he had not forsaken the covenant with Abraham. The rewards promised to Abraham are not new. They are what God has always promised and now further explained. Oh, it is through Sarah. Just like I always thought it is through Sarah. And now you are making it clear she is the one. Through whom the child will come. And you, Abraham, you will have a child. But Abraham is thinking, I have a child. No. He is not the one through whom the nations will be blessed. And he is not the one through whom I will build my nation. There will come one through Sarah. Who will be the Messiah. And can you imagine again the joy? The joy and the amazement. The scriptures comment on this, this passage in Romans chapter 4. Uh, turn there with you, with me, would you, really quick. Romans chapter 4. It's a longer passage than I think you need to see it. In Romans chapter 4 and verse 18. In hope, against all hope, he believed. Romans 4.18. In hope, against hope, he believed. So that he, speaking of Abraham might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Now here, here's the comment. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body. Thinking on uh, physically, thinking earthly terms. Now as good as dead, he was about 100 years old. And the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver. In unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able to perform. The scriptures not only give us insight into what Abraham was thinking in his heart, but the scriptures also comment and interpret what that meant, which is this. In Abraham's heart, he is thinking two things. As he lay down, face down before God, he's thinking, my body is as good as dead. Her womb is as good as dead. But God is in the business of bringing dead things to life. And he believed out of absolute amazement, out of absolute faith, out of wonder at what God could do. Abraham did not waver in faith. This time next year, he shall have laughter. He shall have Isaac, for that is the name or that is the meaning of Isaac's name, laughter. What an amazing promise. An amazing promise that is absolutely contradictory to what we see, what Abraham saw on the outside. He saw a dead man 100 years old. He saw a a woman whose womb was dead at 90 years old. But he believed in the promise of God. And it brought him so much joy that he could not bear it but laugh. He could not bear 
uh, or withhold the amazing wonder of that great promise that he had to laugh. Brothers and sisters, do you marvel at the promises of God? Do the promises of God, promises of God bring you joy? Are you joyful this morning? I could not tell by your faces. It's the season of joy, is it not? There's a Christmas tree over here by, for goodness sake. Second Peter uh, 1.4, the promises of God are called precious. Do you value them as such? Some might say, I would love to rejoice at the promises of God, but there are yet many things that plague my heart and mind. Dear one, what are those things? What are those things that are robbing you from joy? What are those things that are robbing you from pondering on the precious promises of God and not allowing you to receive or even rejoice in what God has promised and that it is true? Dear ones, does guilt of sin and disobedience stifle your desire to rejoice at the promises of God? In response to that, there's a promise from God. Exodus 24, the promises of God The Lord is merciful and gracious. God is more willing to pardon than he is to punish. Mercy is more multiplied in him than sin is multiplied in us. Oh, but we may say, but I do not deserve grace and I don't deserve mercy. You have no idea what I've done. And you're correct. You and I do not deserve grace and you and I do not deserve mercy. And you are also correct. I do not know what you have done. The Lord knows. The Lord knows what you have done, past, present, and future. He knows your thoughts before you think them. And there is a promise for, from God for you. First Peter 3.18, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. My friend, there is not one sin that Christ has not shed his precious blood for, past, present, and future. The Lord delights to show mercy is a promise. He gives grace to the humble is a promise. Micah 7, 8. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever. Why? Because he delights in steadfast love. Oh, but one may say, I would love to rejoice, but you have no idea the sin that I am presently at war with. My dear friend, there is a promise for you from God. You who have truly placed your faith in God and who yet wrestle with sin. John 10, 28, I give to them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will be able to snatch them out of my hand. God has promised to keep those who are his securely in his hand. And you will be preserved by him, his very presence at the right hand of the father. He is making intercession for his bride by his very presence. What is more, Hosea 14 says, the Lord God has promised, I will heal their backslidings. Do you hear that? We who are wrestling with sin, we who are, 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 are entangled in present sin and yet still believers, God has promised that he will heal your backsliding. He has promised to sanctify his people unto himself by his word and spirit. God is working it out. He is working you out, separating you from who you used to be and this world. Oh, pastor, but you have no idea the great trouble that I am presently experiencing in my life. My dear friend, there is a promise from God for you as well. Psalm 91, I will be with them in trouble. Psalm Psalm 23, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because he has promised that he will be with us. All throughout the scriptures, we see that the Lord God does not bring his people into trouble only to leave them there. All throughout the scriptures, we are promised and we are witnesses that the Lord stands and fights for his people. He does not abandon them. He holds our heads and our hearts while we are fainting. Psalm 37 promises that he will be our strength in time of trouble. Listen, either he will make his hand lighter or he will make our faith stronger. But he has promised that he will not leave us as orphans. Rejoice in those promises. Oh, but pastor, you don't understand. I live in fear of lack. 
You have no idea the pressure that I feel on a daily basis just to provide, dear friend, dear brother, dear sister. There is a promise for you as well. Psalm 3410. They that seek the Lord shall not want or lack any good thing. Is it good for us? We shall have it. If it is not good for us, then the withholding of it is also good for us. The testimony from Psalm 37, uh, from the 37th Psalm is such. I've been young and now I am old and I have never seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. From the very life of David, David looks around and he testifies that he has never seen a godly man brought so low that he did not even have a bite of bread to eat. God has never failed to answer this prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. It may be day to day, but he has provided today all of the needs for today. We may not have everything that we want. But we have all that we need and God has provided because he has promised to do so. Rejoice in that. Brothers and sisters, this is all to say that the promises of God are, not should be. They are a rich source of joy for the believer. Not that they should be. They are. They are food for faith. They are springs of joy. There is uh, more in the promises to comfort than in the world to perplex us. The promises of God are a delight for the soul and strength in the midst of weakness. And they should bring a smile to our face. There are times in the Christian life when all we can do is laugh in wonder and amazement at the goodness of God. And of any time, and at any time, it should be on the Lord's day when we are uh, worshiping and gathering. And our worshiping and gathering represents the rest that has been provided for us in Christ. We must come into the place, not as if it were a funeral, but as if, and it is, a celebration of life. For those who are giving birth, there will be nothing but joy when those babies are, are crying. Why? Because life has been birth. And God in Christ Jesus has given us new life. I can remember the first time that I was told, the first time my wife was pregnant with our son Nazareth, and that he would be born around the same time of a great tragedy, the passing of my father. Though the passing of my father was difficult, each time of year, I don't think about that passing as much as I do the birth of my son. Why? Because the disappointment of death has been replaced by the celebration of life. And now then, if that was not enough, listen, if salvation in Christ was not enough, if that I have been rescued from death to life is not enough, if uh, 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 walking in darkness as I used to be and now walking in life is not enough, behold, for the second time, being surprised that we are going to yet, after many years of trying, not 99 years of trying, thanks be to God, but after a few years of trying, being told for a second time, you will have a daughter. And the tears of joy that and laughter that I experienced at the announcement of our little girl. And can you think of the great blessing that is more that we have in Christ? As if Christ were not enough, he gives us more. He gives us more. Go home, count your blessings, and rejoice at every one that you write down. Rejoice at every one that you write down. And yet God is still not done. He is still yet kind to his people with even more blessings and more blessings than we deserve. As if Christ were not enough. And he is. Secondly, Abraham's obedience. This is from 23 to 27 verses. After Abraham hears the promises of God and the promises that will be given to him upon his obedience, Abraham, he takes his time to think about whether or not he will obey. No. Abraham immediately obeys. Immediately obeys. Twice we are told in verse 23 and in verse 26, that very day. Here's a command that very day Abraham obeys. And can I say to you, the command was not an easy command. Abraham and all of the males in his company were to submit to a type of surgery. 
as far as we know, there were no anesthetics at that time, unless they were in some kind of uh, natural uh, plant form. But there were no aesthetics today as we have uh, that day as we have today. Imagine possibly 400 men, 400, all of Abraham's company undergoing a very painful surgery. This surgery would mean that there would be a period of time when the men would not be able to work. This would have a great effect on the productivity of, of the company. This would mean that the Hebrews, for that is what the company of the, Abra- of the those of Abraham were called, they would also be vulnerable to an attack from an enemy because they would be in no shape to fight. This is the command that God gives to Abraham. And these are the consequences if he obeys. And yet, in spite of all of the consequences, Abraham obeys. Why? Because Abraham viewed the consequences of disobedience to God as greater than the consequence that they might experience for only a short amount of time from man. Brothers and sisters, this act of obedience required great faith. It took a man of great faith to hear the commands of God, a difficult command, uh, and to trust and obey God in spite of the difficulty because the reward would be greater than the cost. The command was not a pleasurable one. It was not one that would say, that sounds like a great idea. Let's do that. But joy would come after the pain. How does one have that perspective? How does one have a perspective of, here's God's word, and we say, I will do it. How how does one get to a place where they hear God's word, and rather than, than say no, they say, in spite of the difficulty, I will do it. Because the soul that has been encompassed with the mercy of God is zealously active in God's service. What does that mean? The the grace of God quickens the soul to obedience. Uh, This is how obedience should be. When you recognize the grace and believe and rejoice in the grace that has been given to you, how could you hear the commands of God and say, Nah, not me. You're talking to the other person who should have been at church today. Don't you hate that? When you come to church and say, so-and-so should have been at church today. Is God not sovereign? Is his providence, does his providence not encompass all things? Then you're here. So the word is for you today. When God's word is brought to bear upon our hearts and our ears, let our obedience be immediate. Let us not delay. Let us not hear God's word as if we were lawyers preparing to give our case of why we disagree. Or as if we were forensic debaters and, and, and want to give our rebuttal of why we disagree. But rather, when we hear God's word, let us respond as children of God. As sons and daughters of God. Who at the sound of God's command rejoice. Why? That God has given us instruction for growth of our soul and strengthening of our faith. For that is what happens when we obey. We grow. Do you know that? When you obey, you grow. And your faith is strengthened. Those who don't obey... You won't grow and your faith will be weak. But when you obey, you honor God by obeying his word and you grow and your faith is strengthened. Well, my children don't respond with joy to my commands, right? We may say it's because they and you and we were polluted with sin. That means that every one of our commands is not perfect. We give commands that our children don't rejoice over because they're a sinner and we're a sinner. Our commands are not perfect and they are also not perfect either. But God's commands are perfect. God's law is perfect. Every command that God gives is to edify and sanctify the soul and to bring glory to God. Therefore, they are perfect. Psalm 19, 119.7, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgment of the Lord are true. They are altogether righteous. God's word is perfect and his commands are true, right, clear, and bring glory to God. God has given us his word, not so that we can manipulate it for our own desires, but so that we might hear, rejoice and obey. God has given us our word, his word, but people would rather live according to how they feel. 
I've always struggled at something that may seem very easy for some of you, and don't laugh at me. I've struggled since I've learned how to cook to make hash browns. Don't laugh. I tried, and I've tried, and I've tried, and they're always mushy. They're always wet. They always get burned. I don't understand it. We had two potatoes in our fridge yesterday, and so I said, hash browns is going to, it's going to, it will be conquered today. You will not get me this time. I'm older now. I'm going to be a daddy of two kids now. I know how to make hash browns. And I failed twice yesterday. And I gave up. There was one potato left, but I couldn't do it. So I talked to my mom and I said, I don't understand how you make hash browns. It's easy. Oh, you got to turn this up and you got to turn that. I did that. You got to put more oil. It's hot. It's got to be hotter. I don't understand. And then my wife came in and I brought her my mushy potatoes and I said, I don't get this. What am I doing wrong? And I said, this doesn't look good, does it? And because she loves me, she said, no, that's not the way it's supposed to look. And she said, did you wet them or did you dry them off? And I, I didn't know I was supposed to dry them off. Yeah. And here's her, here's her response. You know, if you look it up, there's people all day long that can teach you how to make hash browns. It's really simple. You just got you know what my response was? No, nah, I'll figure it out. I don't need no help. I'll, you, honey, you should look it up. And listen, because she know no, not because I'm a man, because I'm a sinner. Because she loved me, she was honest enough to say, that doesn't look right. That's not the way it's supposed to be. I'll fill it out. I'll figure it out. I'll go through a bag of, of potatoes until I get it right. But I'm not going to look it up. Why? Because I would rather go on my own ingenuity, on my own ideas of what I think it should be. I'll keep trying. I'll keep trying. Whether I like it or not, that's all that matters. I like it. No one else is going to eat it. But I'll eat it. I said this to our our 430 class. It's like a, a person who's going to make cookies for the first time. No experience. And there's a cookbook over there. But instead of grabbing the cookbook... The baking book, I don't need the baking book. I'll figure it out. I know that there's some flour in there. I know there's some sugar in there, maybe some chocolate chips. I'll just keep throwing it together until I figure it out. How often does that work out for the person who just says, let me just go off an instinct? It always ends up terrible. And sadly, brothers and sisters, we take the same approach to the Bible. I am not going to look at God's word that's been available to me. I'll just go with what I feel and what I like. And I'll go to places that say, yeah, I like that. Is it according to God's word? Doesn't matter. I like that. I feel that right there. I can testify from God's word that that is idolatry. And it always ends up in disaster. How? Because the one who lives their lives based upon their own likes, their own desires, or their own thinking is exalting their own desires, their own thoughts over what God has clearly, clearly declared in his word. And oftentimes we don't agree with what is clear because it's not along with what we like. Or it goes against our traditions. Or it bites against all of the things that are convenient for us. If you truly love God, you will be drawn to his word And to obedience. Not to avoid his commands, but run to his commands. Why would you make error after error of papas when it's very easy? It's right there. And will I do it next time? Maybe. We're talking about papas, not God's word. I will. Are there commands from God that you should be reluctant to obey? Because of the difficulty that will come with them. Just like Abraham. No. You should not. Just because it's going to be difficult. It may mean a new job. Listen. It may mean avoiding a party. Because it falls on the Lord's day. Our obedience may appear to have negative consequences. But we must do it. Because God has commanded it. And if he's commanded it. It's good for us. And it's better for us. Than anything that we choose or desire. Other than. God has commanded that we gather with the saints on his day. Are you rejoicing and obeying that command? 
The Lord has commanded that we sit. Uh, listen, not just the morning. This is the Lord's day. Whatever my family plans, they know it better not be on the Lord's day because there's nothing that exalts anything over this Lord's day. We will do Christmas on Saturday if we have to. This is the Lord's day. God has made that command for us and it's good for our souls. Well, the rest of my family doesn't understand. Well, then why don't you do a good job at telling them what it is? Explaining to them, you're not in the cult. They may think so. Show them God's word. This is what God commands for our lives. And nothing comes above that. Now, saying that right there makes some people uncomfortable. Why? Because some people don't want to hear this is the Lord's day, not just morning. It's the Lord's day. And he's given it to us for our joy. Not for our, de- de- not for our detriment, for our joy. The Lord has commanded that we sit under the preached word for the means of grace. How are you rejoicing and obeying that command? When God's word comes, are you rejoicing? The Lord has commanded that we partake of his supper. Are you rejoicing in that command and obeying it? Thomas Watson said concerning the Lord's Supper, it has glorious effects in the hearts of the godly. It quickens their affections. It strengthens their graces. It mortifies their corruptions. It revives their hopes. And it increases their joy just coming to the table. And if we avoid the table, then we don't really understand the table. Someone will say, well, if I don't do these things, does that mean that I'm not saved? Answer, no. But I don't know a saved person who doesn't do these things. Abraham's obedience showed trust. The fact that he obeys shows that he believes. When we obey, it shows that we believe and trust. So do you believe? Then obey. For obedience is the evidence of your faith. Fruit? Fruit must be shown before one is baptized. And what's fruit? A smile? No. Obedience. The Lord said, if you love me, obey my commands. Third and finally, Genesis chapter 17, verses 15 to 21, the promised child. When the promise had come, Abraham was not unmoved for his son. Listen, Ishmael. There's a promise that comes. God says, you will have a son. And it will be through this son that the nations will be blessed, that I will build my nation. And Abraham makes a request. Oh, God, could it please be Ishmael? Which displays that he loved this boy. Who will later. A year from that moment be sent away. Oh, no. Yeah, a year or more. Scratch that. Who will later be sent away. With his mother. And yet Abraham loved this child. He raised him for 13 years. The time that I've spent with my son, our son, the things that I know that I've taught him in that short amount of time, I can't imagine the time that Abraham spent with that 13-year-old boy teaching him who God is, teaching him to love God, teaching him to obey God, teaching him about the covenant until God says, no, this is not the one. This is not the plan of God. We shall speak more of Ishmael in the future, but the Lord has already made a promise to Hagar that Ishmael will become a great nation. Then we see that 12 kings will come from Ishmael. And those 12 kings are kind of the the antagonist to the 12 tribes of Israel, and they will constantly be a thorn in their flesh, even to this day. The promised child would not come through Hagar. But we see that the promised seed will come through one of the most unlikely of characters, Sarai, who is now called Sarah. Though she be 90 years old in her womb, from the perspective of earth, is as good as dead. Again, God is in the business of raising dead things to life. The Lord God promised that he will supernaturally bring her dead womb back to life for the purpose of bringing forth a seed who will give life. After all this time, she will be given her the desire of her heart. Her heart's greatest desire, a child. 
and what joy this must have been for this elderly couple, if you can imagine. The Lord gives us a picture of what this may have been like in Isaiah 54. You don't need to turn there, but listen. Verse 1 through 3. Shout for joy, O barren one, you who have borne no child. Break forth into joyful shouting and cry aloud, you who have not travailed. For the sons of the desolate one will be more numerous than the sons of the married woman, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch out the curtains of your dwelling places. Spare not. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your pegs. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left. And your descendants will possess nations and will resettle the desolate cities. The picture here is of a woman who is barren. And it is likely that she did not have a husband. But the Lord is saying that the joy of the people will be like the joy of a woman who is barren and who is now going to conceive. Conceive. The gift of a child is a wonderful thing. Even if it is only an earthly picture of what we will receive in Christ. And that is to say this, that of all of the good and wonderful gifts that we receive in this life, There is nothing that can compare to the gift that we have in Christ Jesus. The promise of Isaac was more than God's kindness, though, to give a child to a woman who often wrestled with faith and obedience. It was more than the gift of a child to a man who often wrestled with faith and obedience. In conclusion, this part of God's plan was a part of God's redemptive plan to bring a savior into the world. Many years before, God had made a promise to Adam and to Eve that there would come a seed who would crush the head of the serpent, Genesis 3.15. And that seed would be a mighty warrior. He would be a king, the promised child of Abraham and Sarah. will go on to produce the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And God is taking one more step to complete that promise made back in the garden. That there is coming one who will crush the head of the serpent. The name again, Isaac, means laughter. God instructed that this will be the name because it will be a a constant reminder of the amazing thing that God has done in his great promise. The promise of kings. God said that, that from him will come kings. May be fulfilled in the 12 tribes of Israel. It certainly includes Judah and Israel. But the height of this fulfillment comes in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one through whom all of the royal are are ultimately pointing to. He will be a descendant of David. He has the right to the royal throne because he alone is the one who went to the cross and conquered death and sin by his righteousness. He's earned his rightful place as our king. Uh, Our Baptist Catechism, question 29, asks, how does Christ execute the office of king? Answer, Christ executes the office of a king in subduing himself or, or subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all of our and his enemies. Christ is our king. He's conquered you. He's conquered me. And when he conquers us, he does not conquer to destroy us, He conquers so that he might bring us into his kingdom and so that we might enjoy his kingdom with him forever. He is ruling and defending you and I. How? How is Christ ruling and defending you? Through the church. Through his bride. Through the preaching of the word today. You are being defended and you are being ruled because God's word is being brought to bear upon your heart. Through the sacraments, through baptism and the Lord's Supper, God is ruling and defending you. God protects us from error through the church. He keeps sin and temptation away as we pray and as we are nourished in the church. It is through the church that God rules and governs his people. We, when we are in the church, we are displaying that Christ is our king and we are a part of that kingdom. We are a part of that heavenly host of believers here on earth. Jesus is actively restraining all of his and all of our enemies. The world may set itself up against us, the church. But when they do, they set themselves up against Christ, who sits in heaven. And Psalm 2 says, he sits in heaven and he laughs. 
For those who set themselves up against him and the church, he laughs. And that is a laugh of mockery. Because he has overcome all of his enemies. The lamb who was slain. We are on his side. And he has been victorious. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. And this is the great conclusion of all things. Christ and him conquering as king. Be sure that on that day when Christ utterly conquers all of his enemies and all of our enemies, we will also be laughing in wonder and in delight. But while we wait, understand that in Christ, we have already conquered. In Christ, all of our enemies have been defeated. Sin is no longer our master. Christ has won and he is victorious as this nation will, as this uh, um, season will say, he rules the nations with truth and grace. This is our great king who fulfills the promise to Abraham and Sarah. And rejoice. Rejoice at this promise from God. The only way you would not rejoice if it is not yet yours. The only person who won't rejoice is the person who says, I don't have that. Well, then repent and believe so that it might be yours as well. Rejoice, brothers and sisters. Stay along after service and rejoice with those who are rejoicing. Listen, when the service ends and when our doxology and benediction are sung and said, where are you running off to? Are you that hungry? Will you starve if you don't wait another five minutes? Is there traffic that someone said yes? Some, uh, is there traffic that you are hoping to beat? This is not Los Angeles. There's always a back way. Rejoice with the saints. For when we do so together, we are together pointing to what is ours eternally in in the glory that has been purchased and won for us by Christ. And come back tonight. Because we follow the model of the church who, got, who gathers and prays. We should not be afraid to say, tonight we're praying. Because if we say so, then no one will show up. No, we are going to pray. And we are going to pray for you. And for this church. And for the church Catholic that is universal. And that the gospel would go out to the nations. We need to be a praying church. And where the church is not praying, how do we display that our, that we absolutely depend and trust in God? Come, join us tonight. Let's pray. Let us do so now.